Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Hey, just a heads up. This week's episode isn't one to listen to with your kids. There's adult language, and also we're going to be talking about abuse, physical and emotional. So if you need to sit this one out or come back to it later, we totally get it. Take care of yourselves. When I think of hashtag me too, I think of powerful men and their downfalls. But back in October 2017, when the spark was first lit, it was about all of these individual voices coming together, from famous actresses to Olympic gymnasts to your friends from college, a movement around saying, yeah, abuse, harassment, assault, me too. That was the month when Michelle Philgate decided to share her story. It's a personal essay that she'd been working on, on and off for about 10 years. I was staying with my friend on her houseboat in Sausalito, and there were nearby wildfires. And I woke up at dawn because I knew this essay was going to be published that day. It's a story about abuse she experienced as a teenager from her stepfather. But it's really about her mom. Sitting outside, watching the sunrise through the thick, smoky air, ash started falling on her keyboard. It felt so hard to know that this story was now exposed and out there. It really felt like I was setting fire to my own life. Michelle titled her essay, What My Mother and I Don't Talk About. And that day, it went viral. This is The Longest Shortest Time. I'm Andrea Salenzi. So let's try this. Let's make today's show a kind of audiobook-podcast hybrid. We asked writer Michelle Philgate to come on the show and read us this essay. Talk about where things are at these days with her mom. Because the essay didn't just go viral. It also turned into an anthology collection featuring even more writers with their own takes on what my mother and I don't talk about. That's writer Naomi Munavera, who will also be sharing her essay about her mom. We're featuring these essays today because here at the show... Complicated mom relationships come up all the time. They can affect how we form every other bond throughout our lives. No pressure. Today on the show, two different stories about the wounds our moms can leave us with and what, if anything, can be done to start the healing. When Michelle was 9 or 10 years old, her parents separated. And a few years after that, her mom got remarried. I have this distinct memory of the day I found out they were getting married because I was sleeping over my friend's house. And my mom picked me up from the sleepover, and she was wearing this engagement ring, and she told me. And I just kind of remember my heart sinking and not being happy about that news. Why do you think you felt that way? I think it's just a child's intuition of, ugh, <laughs> this isn't good. Living with her new stepdad, it wasn't long before it was clear he had a temper. Throughout her teenage years, the stepdad abused Michelle emotionally and physically. Michelle moved out at 17. And then in college, she started trying to write about what happened. At first, she thought this was a story about anger and resentment. 
But then the piece changed. It became about a feeling she found even more powerful. It was now about her mom. At its core, this is a piece about a daughter longing for her mother. What we don't talk about enough is when someone is abused, like the person who's supposed to protect you from that, the complicity of that, like what does that do to the person who is abused? It became a work in progress that followed Michelle through college and into her adult life. And then at a summer writing workshop, she got a piece of advice from her teacher, Joanne Beard. One of the things she said that I'll never forget is that every person has darkness and light, and it's important to capture that. And so I didn't want my stepdad to seem like a cartoon villain. And that was when I added this jewelry box metaphor in this essay, and it kind of opened up the whole essay in a way it hadn't been opened up before. On the day her essay went viral, Michelle's favorite writers started sharing it, like Anne Lamott and Rebecca Solnit. And now we're going to share it here. So I'm going to read my essay, What My Mother and I Don't Talk About. Stay tuned until after the essay for more of our interview with Michelle Filgate. Our mothers are our first homes, and that's why we're always trying to return to them. To know what it was like to have one place where we belonged, where we fit. My mother is hard to know. Or rather, I know her and don't know her at the same time. I can imagine her long, grayish-brown hair that she refuses to chop off, the vodka and ice in her hand. But if I try to conjure her face, I'm met instead by her laugh, a fake laugh, the kind of laugh that is trying to prove something, a forced happiness. Several times a week, she posts tempting photos of food on her Facebook page. Pork tacos with pickled red onions, strips of beef jerky just out of the smoker, slabs of steak that she serves with steamed vegetables. These are the meals of my childhood, sometimes ambitious and sometimes practical. But these meals, for me, call to mind my stepfather. The red of his face, the red of the blood pooled on the plate— he uses a dish towel to wipe the sweat from his cheeks. His work boots are coated in sawdust. His words puncture me, tines of a fork stuck in a half-deflated balloon. You are the one causing problems in my marriage, he says. You fucking bitch, he says. I'll slam you, he says. And I'm afraid he will. I'm afraid he'll press himself on top of me on my bed until the mattress opens up and swallows me whole. Now, my mother saves all of her cooking skills for her husband. Now, she serves him food at their farmhouse in the country and their condo in the city. Now, my mother no longer cooks for me. My teenage bedroom is covered in centerfolds from Teen Beat and faded inkjet printouts of Leonardo DiCaprio and Jacob Dylan. Dog fur tumbleweeds float around when a breeze comes through my front window. No matter how much my mother vacuums, they multiply. My desk is covered in a mess of textbooks and half-written letters and uncapped pens and dried-up highlighters and pencils sharpened to slivers. I write sitting on the hardwood floor, my back pressed against the hard red knobs of my dresser. It isn't comfortable, but something about the constant pressure grounds me. 
I write terrible poems that I think, in a moment of teenage vanity, are quite brilliant. Poems about heartbreak and being misunderstood and being inspired. I print them out on paper with a sunset beach scene in the background and name the collection Summer's Snow. While I write, my stepfather sits at his desk that's right outside my bedroom. He's working on his laptop, but every time his chair squeaks or he makes any kind of movement, fear rises up from my stomach to the back of my throat. I keep my door closed, but that's useless since I'm not allowed to lock it. Shortly after my stepfather married my mother, he made a simple jewelry box for me that sits on top of my dresser. The wood is smooth and glossy, no nicks or grooves in the surface. I keep broken necklaces and gaudy bracelets in it, things I want to forget. Like those baubles in the box, I can play with existing and not existing inside my bedroom. My room is a place to be myself and not myself. I disappear into books like they are black holes. When I can't focus, I lay for hours on my bottom bunk bed, waiting for my boyfriend to call and save me from my thoughts. Save me from my mother's husband. The phone doesn't ring. The silence cuts me. I grow moodier. I shrink inside of myself, stacking sadness on top of anxiety, on top of daydreaming. What are the two things that make the world go round? My stepfather is asking me a question he always asks. We are in his woodworking shop in the basement, and he's wearing his boots and an old pair of jeans with a threadbare T-shirt. He smells like whiskey. I know what the answer is. I know it, but I do not want to say it. He is staring at me expectantly, his skin crinkled around half-shut eyes, his boozy breath hot on my face. Sex and money, I grumble. The words feel like hot coals in my mouth, heavy and shame-ridden. That's right, he says. Now, if you're extra, extra nice to me, maybe I can get you into that school you want to go to. He knows my dream is to go to SUNY Purchase for acting. When I am on the stage, I am transformed and transported into a life that isn't my own. I am someone with even bigger problems, but problems that might be resolved by the end of an evening. I want to leave the basement, but I can't just walk away from him. I'm not allowed to do that. The exposed light bulb makes me feel like a character in a noir film. The air is colder, heavier down here. I think back to a year before, when he parked his truck in front of the ocean and put his hand on my inner thigh, testing me, seeing how far he could go. I insisted he drive me home. He wouldn't for at least a long, excruciating half hour. When I told my mom, she didn't believe me. Now he is up against me, arms coiled around my back. The tines of the fork return, this time letting all the air out. He talks softly in my ear. This is just between you and me, not your mother. Understand? I don't understand. He pinches my ass. He is hugging me in a way that stepfathers should not hug their stepdaughters. His hands are worms, my body dirt. I break free from him and run upstairs. Mom is in the kitchen. She's always in the kitchen. Your husband grabbed my butt, I spit out. She quietly sets down the wooden spoon she is using to stir and goes downstairs. 
The spoon is stained red with spaghetti sauce. Later, she finds me curled up in the fetal position in my room. Don't worry, she says. He was only joking. On an afternoon a few years earlier, I stepped down from the school bus. The walk from the end of my block to my driveway is always full of tension. If my stepfather's tomato red pickup truck is in the driveway, it means I have to be in the house with him. But today, there is no truck. I am alone, deliciously alone. And on the counter, a coffee cake my mother baked, the crumbled brown sugar making my mouth water. I cut into it and devour half of the dessert in a couple of bites. My tongue begins to tingle, the first sign of an anaphylactic reaction. I'm used to them. I know what to do. Take liquid Benadryl right away and let the artificial cherry syrup coat my tongue as it puffs up like a fish, blocking my airway. My throat starts to close. But we only have pills. They take a lot longer to dissolve. I swallow them and immediately throw up. My breath comes only in squeaky gasps. I run to the beige phone on the wall, dial 911. The minutes it takes the EMTs to arrive are as long as my 13 years on Earth. I stare into the mirror at my tear-stained face, trying to stop crying because it makes it even harder to breathe. The tears come anyway. In the ambulance on the way to the emergency room, they give me a teddy bear. I hold it close to me like a newborn baby. Later, my mother pushes the curtain aside and steps next to my hospital bed. She's frowning and relieved at the same time. There were crushed walnuts on the top of that cake. I baked it for a coworker, she says. She looks at the teddy bear still cradled in my arms. I forgot to leave a note for you. I've spent enough time in Catholic churches to know what it means to sweep things underneath the carpet. My family is good at that until we're not. Sometimes our secrets are still partially visible. It's easy to trip over them. The silence in the church isn't always peaceful. It just makes it more jarring when the tiniest noise, a muffled cough or a creaky knee, echoes through the sanctuary. You can't be holy yourself there. You have to hollow yourself out like a husk. In high school, I'm the opposite. I'm too much myself because the too muchness is a way of saying I'm still here, the me of me, and not the me he wants me to be. Anything can set me off. I run out of biology class multiple times a week, and my teacher follows me to the girls' room, pressing tissues that feel like sandpaper to my cheek. I hang out in the nurse's office whenever I can't handle being around other people. Here's what silence sounds like after he loses his temper, after I, in a moment of bravery, scream back at him, you're not my father. It sounds like an egg cracked once against a porcelain bowl. It sounds like the skin of an orange peeled away from the fruit. It sounds like a muffled sneeze in church. Good girls don't disrupt the class. Bad girls visit the guidance counselor so frequently that she keeps an extra supply of tissues just for them. Bad girls talk to the police officer who is assigned to their high school. They roll the tissues in their hands until they crumble like a muffin. Good girls look anywhere but in the police officer's eyes. They stare at the second hand on the clock mounted on the wall. They tell the officer, no, it's okay. You don't need to talk to my stepfather and mother. It will just make things worse. Silence is what fills the gap between my mother and myself. All of the things we haven't said to each other 
because it's too painful to articulate. What I want to say, I need you to believe me. I need you to listen. I need you. What I say, nothing. Nothing until I say everything. But articulating what happened isn't enough. She's still married to him. The gap widens. Now I buy my own Benadryl and keep it on me at all times. These days, my mother and I mostly communicate via group text messages along with my older sister, in which my mother and I reply to my sister, who shares photos of my niece and nephews. One day, I tried to reach out. I'm going to Nana's this weekend. Maybe you can come down and visit me while I'm there. She didn't respond. I text rather than call her because she might be in the same room as him. I like to pretend he doesn't exist, and I'm good at it. She taught me, like with the broken baubles in my old jewelry box, I just close the lid. I wait for a text reply from her, some excuse about why she can't get away. When Nana picks me up from the train station, I secretly hope my mother is in the car with her, wanting to surprise me. Her car never appeared in the driveway. A message never appeared on my phone. My mother's country house, two hours away from my hometown, was built by a Revolutionary War soldier with his own hands. Several years ago, she posted a photo on Facebook of the backyard, lush and green, with tiny orbs appearing like starlight. I love you past the sun and the moon and the stars, she'd always say to me when I was little. But I just want her to love me here, now, on Earth. We'll be right back with Michelle Philgate and hear where things are at with her mom two years after publishing the essay. Don't go away. Can you say advertisements? Advertisements. <laughs> Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Welcome back. So before Michelle released her essay, she had to consider if she'd share it with her mom first. The answer was easy. No. (laughs) I know a lot of writers who will not publish something without showing it to the person first. In this particular situation, I did not want to risk being silenced even more than I've been for years now. Did publishing that essay feel like an attempt to talk to her about it? Absolutely. We can't seem to communicate effectively in real life. So I feel like I'm writing toward my mother because we can't seem to say these things. You know, I can't I can't seem to get her to effectively listen to me. I think not being able to communicate with the person that we 
come from can feel like the ultimate loss to not be able to effectively communicate and to not be able to understand. And I think we're all trying to understand our moms. And that's kind of a lifelong thing, you know. Did part of you have a fantasy that she would read it and then just be like, oh, now I understand? Of course, that was my wildest dream. But I also deep down knew that that would not happen. And it's been very difficult because our relationship is even more complicated right now because she was not happy with this essay at all. So I'm I'm kind of in the thick of it right now. I tell all of my students, you know, you have to be prepared for facing any fallout that you might face from, from writing difficult truths. But at the same time, I think nothing really prepares you because you always have that hope that maybe this will make things better. What do you miss about her? Well, I've seen her on and off over the last decade. You know, we have spent some time together. But I miss feeling like I could have a real conversation with her. I felt this um, lack of authenticity each time we engaged with each other in the past decade. It just always felt like there was this undercurrent of everything that happened and everything not being addressed, and when it was addressed, it not being addressed in the right way. So I just, I really miss feeling like I can call up my mom and and tell her anything, because I've actually never, I've never had that as an adult. And so I miss feeling like I can tell my mom about my life. For Michelle, there is this one bright spot that came out of making the anthology. There is one situation in my book where it has helped with healing between the mother and child, and I just love that, and it makes the whole book worth it to me. My name is Naomi Munavira, and my latest novel is called What Lies Between Us. So Naomi Munavira wrote this essay about growing up with a mentally ill mom. I have an essay in the book, What My Mother and I Don't Talk About, Her Body, My Body. In the essay, Naomi is grappling with whether or not her mother's strange behavior is a symptom of mental illness, like borderline personality disorder, or if it's a product of her family's journey as immigrants. First, they left Sri Lanka for Nigeria when Naomi was three, and then they settled in Los Angeles when Naomi was 12. I just want everyone to know that this is the hardest thing I've ever written. I'm a novelist by trade. I've written two novels and many nonfiction pieces and many fiction pieces. And this one is the one that has been the most difficult and the most personal. And again, another content warning. This essay begins with a traumatic memory, one she never planned to talk about. The essay is structured into these short vignettes that move through time across her family's story. So at various points, you're going to hear Naomi introduce new sections with their titles. Her Body, My Body by Naomi Munavira. We'll have more from Naomi after we hear her essay. I'm sitting on the toilet waiting for my mother. I have to wait for her because I'm incapable of cleaning myself properly. As always, she keeps me waiting. When she comes, she makes disgusted faces as she wipes me. The message is she doesn't want to do this, but she has to because I'm too stupid to do it right. There have been loud arguments about this issue. My father and my grandmother fighting with her to let me clean myself, saying it's not normal. 
She has defied them all. She is my mother, and my body belongs to her. I don't fight her. I believe her. And I know I'm not capable of doing anything right. Only this time, it's different. There's blood. I've gotten my first period. That's when my mother starts letting me clean myself. That's when she lets me start showering without her overseeing. I'm 12 years old. The problem was that she saw no difference between her body and my body. I belonged to her completely. I was both her best, beloved, precious child and a useless piece of shit. Sometimes she baked and made me dresses. Other times she screamed that I was worthless. Constantly I wavered between these two understandings of myself, never sure where to land, always looking for evidence as to what I was. It had been easy when I was an infant. Then she had naturally controlled every aspect of my life, and this fed her need for subservience. It was later, when it became apparent, that I would form a personality separate from hers, that I would not be her, that I had inherited traits from my father whom she hated but whom she would not leave, that things got difficult. I remember other adults talking about her rage, but they were afraid of getting involved in our family dynamics and therefore no one intervened. Decades later, when I was in my 30s living in San Francisco and had found a therapist who would unlock all of my life, I finally revealed how old I had been when my mother stopped treating me like an infant. I had never told anyone before, and I imagined that if I told someone this shameful secret, they would realize that I was soiled and therefore inherently unlovable. I stuttered and wept and finally was able to say the words, and he responded with these magic phrases. It's not your fault. You didn't do anything wrong. You were just a child. I left his office and wandered into a bookstore and from a second story overlooking Union Square called my mother and asked her why she hadn't allowed me dominion over my own body. She said she couldn't remember, but she had been young. Mostly she thought she was trying to do the best for me. She was trying to be a good mother. She was sad about it. There was nothing else to say. We never talked about it again. surviving. This is how I survived my childhood. I disappeared. As a child, I slipped into books and everything around me, including my own body, faded away. It was a very conscious act. I'm very lucky that early and unknowingly I found books instead of any other drug. I've never fully returned from that early disassociation. My deepest life has been spent inside books both in the consumption and later in the creation of them. And in this way, perhaps my mother's condition has been the primary shaping force in my life. As an adolescent, I saw that our Sri Lankan Los Angeles community looked like the perfect model minority, but behind the manicured lawns or luxury cars of multiple degrees were various degrees of rot. Daughters I knew whispered that their fathers had touched them and everyone shushed them up. Girls I knew were married off to men 25 years or senior by their mothers, and no one intervened. As long as you achieved the American dream, nothing that happened inside those houses mattered. When it was particularly bad, I would take my sister and we would leave. It didn't matter how late it was. We would wander through those empty suburban streets. Often we would leave so quickly we were barefoot. 
the concrete cooling under our feet. In the park, we would swing up towards the moon, drunk with the freedom of being outside, while the other kids were all in bed. We would steal into gardens and pluck roses, hydrangeas, and lilies. Hours later, I would slip up to our door and put my ear to it. If there was still screaming, we would keep walking. We would only come back when they were asleep. We would fill all the vases in the house with stolen flowers. The scent would permeate the house and perfume our dreams. In the morning, my father would lecture us for stealing other people's property. He was always so concerned about other people, how we looked to them, what we stole from them. He never seemed to care about what was taken from us. Immigrant Dreams We were part of the first wave of Sri Lankan Americans, a tiny community of islanders in the suburbs of Los Angeles. If you saw us then, you would have seen the perfect immigrant family. You would have seen people who had pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. Consider my father. In Nigeria, he had been a respected professional. In America, his first job included rolling through raw sewage in flood-controlled channels balanced on his stomach on a small wheeled board. From there, he rose in the ranks of the Los Angeles County until he was a very prominent engineer. An almost unbelievable life trajectory for a boy from a small Sri Lankan village. Consider my mother, this girl who never went to college. In Nigeria, she had been the principal of her own school. In California, she started over as a preschool teacher. She opened the school at 6 a.m. and closed it at 6 p.m. and then she went home to cook and clean. Over two decades, she saved up enough to buy a preschool and then another. She remade herself as a business owner, a homeowner. In America, we knew we had to be very, very good. Americans often looked at us with suspicion. Sometimes they said we spoke English well, and it was supposed to be a compliment. They didn't seem to know that we had been born with the language in our mouths because of a certain cruel history, and so we smiled and said thank you. Other times they got angry and shouted that we should go home, and then we knew that only perfection would convince them that we too were human. We were tenacious, thrifty, and hardworking. Always we looked so good. My mother in a sari, my father in a suit with a tie that matched her sari. Their two pretty daughters. How we glittered and dazzled at the immigrant parties that were the whole of our social life. In that strange place, Sri Lanka and Los Angeles, Colombo meeting Hollywood. It was important to shine in this small community of 200 families. Not doing so meant risking being ostracized, and who could survive in the wilds of America without the bomb of one's own people? Love. When I make a rare visit to the house in which I grew up, I see dozens of pictures of my sister and me, almost all of them from childhood or adolescence, as if the clock stopped then. I know my parents love and miss me. I, too, deeply mourn all we lost, but I have reached the bottom of my own particular well. There's compassion here, but not much hope for connection beyond that. When I leave my childhood home, my parents stand outside waving, she on the front steps, he on the edge of the lawn. They wave and wave as I drive away. They will not go into the house until they lose sight of me. They keep waving until they are very small, like tiny children in my rearview mirror, and then they are gone. And then slowly I can remember that I have made a different path for myself. 
I have found the ones who know my heart and keep it safe. I have created myself as someone who I like, respect, and love. I have made my way into myself and learned that love too is contagious. I have learned that healing is possible and that we make lives that we couldn't even have imagined when we were little and then we carry the little ones we were into these new and luminous lives. And um, yeah, so that's the end of the essay, but then there's a little postscript and uh, we added this later and I think it's really important to always end with this note. And this postscript is what Naomi's mom had to say after reading the essay. We'll hear it in a bit. Stay with us. Say advertisement. Advertisement. Good job. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Welcome back. As promised, we're going to get to that postscript to Naomi's essay in a bit. But the first thing you need to know is that writing this essay went against all of Naomi's better instincts. As a South Asian, as a person of color, I mean, probably as a daughter, as any of these things, we're trained not to talk about what's happening in the house. And like, you know, especially as an immigrant, you want to keep these secrets to yourself. You're dealing with racism. You're dealing with all these like outside forces. So I was not going to reveal any of this until she was dead. Um, And then Michelle, when Michelle approached me, it felt so different because it felt like, okay, we're going to be doing this in concert. It felt like there would be some strength and power and that kind of solidarity. Were you afraid? (laughs) I was terrified. I'm not a stranger to writing about trauma, but I've always mediated it through fiction. And I've written some nonfiction about my life, but this was the big one. This was like the sort of big mother wound that I've been carrying around like most of my life, all, all of my life. So there were different stages in approaching this essay. The first was writing it, which she thought would take two weeks, but actually took three months. Months of crying and re-experiencing the trauma. That was step one, which was long and big. And then step two, which happened six months before publishing the essay. Step two was like, holy shit, I need to send this to my parents, especially my mother, because I don't want some auntie to be like, oh, your daughter wrote about you in this book, you know, did you know? So I didn't want them to be caught unaware. I didn't want my mother to sort of go to a party and have this like said to her in some mean way. So Naomi timed it. She emailed the essay to her mom on a Thursday, knowing she had a busy day that Friday, could avoid dwelling. And then it was a Saturday morning and she still hadn't heard anything. And I woke up that morning and I'm like, oh, my God, I think I woke up at like four and just like grappling with like, can I do this to her? And I my partner woke up and he's like, what's wrong? I'm like, oh, my God, I don't know. I don't think I can do this. I think it's going to hurt her too much. I think I have to pull the essay. So I was very seriously considering just texting Michelle and saying, I cannot do this. Like, this is 
an act of violence against my mother that I don't want to do. And that's when my mother's email came through. That email is the postscript that ends Naomi's essay. Daughter, I'm so proud of you for having the strength to publish this essay. It's going to help a lot of people. I'm very sorry for what took place in our life. I take full responsibility. I cannot change the past. I love you very much and hope we can move forward to build a better relationship in the future. I'm proud of all your awesome achievements. Love you, Ami. She had read it, and I think she had sat with it and talked to people about it and sort of done some work around it, because when she wrote that, I I believe everything she said. And there was a sort of like accountability and responsibility that I've never heard before from her. Um, And also this feeling of like, I'm proud of you, and I think this is going to help other people was like huge. I mean, it was like just the most important thing to get that. And now that Naomi saw this openness in her mother, it opened up all these questions about her mother's trauma, things she'd always wanted to ask about, like what it was like to enter an arranged marriage at 19, what it was like to give birth at 20 years old. It was so humanizing because she was so young and she was just really afraid and she was alone. At that time in Sri Lanka in 1973, she was telling me that she didn't really understand what birth meant. So I think she was even confused about what would be happening to her body. Naomi asked her mom to tell her the story. And her mom agreed. And I said, where do you want to do that? And she said, Starbucks. I said, okay. Uh, <laughs> so there we were in Starbucks talking for like two hours and just crying our eyes out. And, um, you know, it was like one of the most emotional scenes of my life in a suburban Los Angeles Starbucks. Does your mother wound feel smaller? Yeah, it does. I mean, I can't believe I'm saying that to you, but like, yes. So while writing helped heal things between Naomi and her mom, for Michelle, it didn't. I think it helps other people more than it helps me. And really what helped me is years of therapy. Um, I can't recommend that enough for figuring out, especially like your relationship with your mother. Um, It's helped me in that I feel like I have more power over my own voice now. But it doesn't do the same thing that therapy does, which is, you know, help you figure out how to live. And Naomi, she's also done a ton of therapy. Plus, she joined a group called Codependence Anonymous, has done quite a bit of journaling, and is deep into a 20-year-long meditation practice. You know, the healing isn't just for us. It's really important to heal ourselves, and then it spreads. So as you heal yourself, you're healing. I mean, if you're having kids, I think it's essential. You know, I have nieces, so I'm doing this healing work so that I can be present for them. And then, like, to get really woo-woo, I think I'm doing some of that work also for my ancestors. You know, there's a way in which, like, I've inherited a lot of their trauma, right? The women in my line have been, like, traumatized by, like, patriarchy, by racism. And I think, like, as we heal those wounds, we're almost sending the healing sort of back in time. Today's show has been about this powerful prompt, what my mother and I don't talk about. And maybe it's got you thinking about writing your own essay. Yeah, yeah, why not? Writing about your mom, that's the central, probably the central relationship of your life, right? 
even if she isn't around, even if you've never met her, that sort of even that absence is like a powerful thing to explore. So, yes, I would highly recommend it. So go to a suburban Starbucks and write or make a zine. Go make a podcast or maybe just read about moms. You can start with Michelle Philgate's essay collection with stories from other writers like Leslie Jameson and Alexander Chee, plus the full version of Naomi's essay. It was condensed for the podcast. And then we have a list of even more books that Michelle loves, books that have helped her write about her mom. They're all on our website. That's longestshortesttime.com. We want to hear from you. What do you and your mom not talk about? Tell us in the comments for this episode, even if it's anonymously. That's episode number 196. This episode was produced by me, Andrea Salenzi, with Jackie Sajiko. Our editor is Amy Drostowska. Our show's creator and executive producer is Hilary Frank. Hillary's new book, Weird Parenting Wins, is out now. We still have a few signed copies left at podswag.com slash LST. Our engineer is Brendan Burns. Our music is performed by hotmoms.gov. We get editorial support from Peter Clowney, Antonia Acatunde, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Rekha Murthy, and Julia Wang. Next time on The Longest Shortest Time, when Nisha was weeks away from adopting a kid, she got really into breast milk. Here's her wife, Jill. She's rented the pump. She's like on Twitter talking to all these women who have all this extra breast milk in their freezer. And she's got all these trips planned to go with an ice chest to all these places all around Houston. And I'm like, what is happening? It's like the train left the station and I was left behind. I mean, she had these like lactation muffins. She was like, don't eat that. That's for lactation. I'm like, sorry. You know, I just like, I just stepped into my own house and it was like this whole other world all around lactation. Don't miss Lactation Muffins. Subscribe to The Longest Shortest Time on Stitcher or wherever you're listening right now. And as always, here at The Longest Shortest Time, we want to hear your stories. Right now, I'm obsessed with the kind of happy ending stories where kids get lost in the woods and have to survive on huckleberries and hide from bears. You know, the kind of stories where a kid experiences real-life home alone and everything works out in the end. Send us your thrilling tales of badass little kid survivors. Go to longestshortesttime.com, hit the participate tab, and submit your story. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.